Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. If you are a Christian, what is your life communicating about the nature of God? When people look at your life, when people look at my life, what do they think about who God is? About what's important to God? About what's significant to God? As a church... What are we communicating to people about the nature and the character of God? When people look at us as a congregation and and they, they spend time with us and they reflect upon what we do and say and all that we are, what kind of image of God are they going to see and shape? Now we may... Think about those questions and say it really doesn't matter. God's going to get through to people any way he wants to. He doesn't really need us. It's not that important. But I think it is important. And one of the places where I see the scriptures telling us it's important is this passage from Luke's gospel that we've just read. Chapter 18 tells us that Jesus says to his disciples, the time is drawing near. And we need to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit has revealed to Christ that the the end is coming and that's going to take place in Jerusalem and it's time now to go. And so they set out toward Jerusalem. And when they get there, Jesus receives this hero's welcome, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. He rides into town on, on a donkey and the people wave palm branches and proclaim him the king. With all of these underlying messianic and overt messianic expectations. And Jesus rides into into the city to this great acclaim. And he gets off this donkey and he walks to the temple to worship. And when he gets to the temple, it just sort of all goes crazy. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus is so furious with what he finds in the temple that he takes out a whip and begins driving people out and turning over tables. And you read this and you think, that doesn't sound like Jesus. This doesn't sound like the Jesus who has little children come and sit on his lap. This doesn't sound like the Jesus who is kind and gentle and meek and and loving. That sounds anything but that. And yet, here he is. And you wonder, what is it that makes Jesus so upset? It's what's happening in the temple. Pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem. It's the week of Passover. The city population has swelled during this time. And people come for the purpose of gathering at the temple to, to worship. And they're doing two things. One, they're coming to pay the temple tax. And this is something you have to pay with a temple shekel. It's the only currency that the temple will accept. A 
a temple shekel. But the problem is no one else recognizes the temple shekel with any value in society. It is worthless outside of the temple. People don't just carry those around in their pockets. And so they have, in order to accommodate people, they have booths set up outside, much like you might find in uh, an international airport, where they will exchange money for you. You hand them the money that you typically use, that you do carry around with you, and they will exchange it for you. It's a great service, except for the fact that they are charging an exorbitant amount to exchange that money. They're not, they're not making a little profit. They're making a huge profit. There are some estimates that during that week, the, the people who do this, and this is all run by the, the high priest and the temple authorities, they're making ten dollars to $15,000 in first century money. Can't even begin to imagine how much that is. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, that they are raking in. And most of the people who are being fleeced are poor people. But they've come to do what God has told them to do, and they're taking advantage of them. And Jesus says, not in my house. And the other thing is they're coming to sacrifice animals, which again, part of the law. This is what they're supposed to do. And they sacrifice, if you have some money, you sacrifice a lamb. If you're poor, you sacrifice a turtle dove. And you can bring animals from home if you want to lug them that far. And you can buy animals from shops all around Jerusalem. But you just have to make sure that they, when you come to sacrifice them, that they're an animal that doesn't have any defects. That was the law. You can only sacrifice animals without defects. And so there are inspectors at the temple who are checking the animals to make sure they don't have any defects. Now, the other thing is the temple authorities also sell animals. And when it's interesting because when you come to the inspector, if you bring an animal that you bought somewhere else, odds are it's, they're going to find some de- something wrong with it. And the only animals that are acceptable are the ones you buy from them. And the animals you buy from the temple people are much more expensive than the animals you can buy anywhere else. And they are again fleecing the people in the name of God. And Jesus says, not in my house. You are sending a message to these people coming to worship that it's okay to use them in the name of God. It's okay to get rich off of them in the name of God. It's all right to abuse them in the name of God. And I'm telling you now, it's not. Because these people are walking out thinking that's who God is. God doesn't care. God only is interested in taking from us. And Jesus is deeply concerned about the image of God the pilgrims are walking away from the temple with. And the other element of this, and saw this in, in uh, Jeremiah's prophecy where he says, you know, tells, says to the people of Judah, you've made, you've made the temple a den of robbers. This is the place where thieves come like a cave and they hide their, their loot and they feel safe. And Jesus says, you've now made the temple a safe place for thieves. For people who, as he says later in, in Luke, take advantage of widows. 
and turn around and offer these lengthy self-righteous prayers. There's also the dynamic of the Gentiles coming to worship. And the temple is divided into sections. And of course the intersection, Holy of Holies, only the high priest can go into that section once a year. And then you have the, te- the court of, Je- of the Jewish men. And then outside of that, the court of the Jewish women. And only the Jewish men can go into as far as their court. And the Jewish women can only go as far as their court. And the outside of that is the court of the Gentiles. And if you are a Gentile and you, you want to worship Yahweh at the temple, this is your space. You're not allowed any further in. This is where you come to worship. This is the place where you come and you pray. And, and you experience God at the temple. This is your space. And that is the very space that this flea market is taking place. If you've ever been to a, a third world country... And you go to a bazaar or a market and, and you're there with people selling all kinds of, of food, animals, wares, people hawking them, crowds pushing and shoving. I have in my mind sort of that kind of, of scenario in the temple. Imagine trying to come into that place and worshiping. And the Gentiles walk out thinking, God doesn't care a thing about us. God doesn't care if we come and worship him or not. Obviously, it doesn't matter to the people who represent him. They don't care. They just want our money. And Jesus says, this is supposed to be a place of prayer. This is supposed to be a place of worship. And you have turned it into this den of thieves. Now, the question for us is if Jesus were to visit our temple, what would he say doesn't belong? If Jesus were to come into our, our lives and our corporate lives, what would he say needs to be cleansed, needs to be cleaned out? What, what are we doing that is giving a, a, a poor impression of who God is? Because as the church, we can either be a catalyst for people to experience God or we can hinder people from experiencing God. We can be people who who cause others to say, that's what I want. That's exactly how, how I want. That's what I want in my life, what they have in their life. Or we can be people who say, I don't want anything to do with that and that God. And the cross calls us to, to examine ourselves so that we are not hindrances to people experiencing God, but we make it easy for people to experience God. We open doors for people to experience God and to see an image of God that is pure and true and biblical. How do we do that? I think there are some things that we need to think about. How we act. And particularly, how do we respond to to things in the world that are not as they should be? How do we respond to injustice in the world? How do we respond to people who are harmed in the world? What's our response to those things? 
Dr. King said back in the civil rights movement that there wouldn't have been 250 years of slavery and there wouldn't be segregation and, and racism and discrimination if, if it hadn't been for the church. Either supporting it or ignoring it. And he said the church was too often an echo instead of a voice. Too often the church, were, we were headlights behind decisions made by the Supreme Court or other secular institutions. We were taillights of that instead of headlights, leading the way, shining the light of Christ on the injustice and doing something about it. It ought to shame us how many times that there is injustice in the world and the first response is from people who are not Christians instead of people who are Christians. When we see those things, we ought to be the first ones to say, we got to do something about that. And it's not as though we aren't doing anything. There are things that we do as individuals, as a congregation, and, and they are terrific. But I suspect that there is still much that we need to change. We need to think about. I think that we have to, to ponder how we interact with people who are not Christians. And being patient with them as they go through their journey. I, I sometimes like to think of it this way that I'm trying to be patient with people in their journey like God is being patient with me and mine. And if your experience is anything like mine, God is awesomely patient with you. Because he is with me. And yet, I can become so impatient with people. I want to shove people into the kingdom. Instead of in love drawing them to Christ. Oswald Chambers says our Lord never shoved and pushed people into the kingdom. He, he drew them. He loved them into the kingdom. And yet we tend to want to grab them by the scruff of the neck and say get in here. And it just doesn't work that way. I mean if we have to drag someone kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Are they really in the kingdom? If they don't really want to be there, what have we really accomplished? But rather, we're trying to help them see who God is and trying to, to help them understand what Christ has done. And it takes us back to the cross. We look at the cross and we see, quite frankly, this is failure. And who in the right mind would think you go to a cross in order to, to, be, to win? Now, we know on this side of it, it becomes victory. But only because of the way God works in the resurrection. And we see Christ being so patient with people. Giving them space, giving them room, but never stopping loving them. And this is not some kind of strategy we develop. This, we're just trying to love people. We're trying to care about people. And we care enough to give people space and to give people room and to meet people where they are instead of expecting them to meet us where we are. 
Somebody once said that we have a tendency to be rabbit hole Christians. We pop out of our Christian homes in the morning. We hold our breath while we run to work in secular places. And then we get back home and we take and we let go of that breath. And then we run to a Bible study and we come home at night. And we spend time praying for the people we've been avoiding all day. I think there's something true to that. And we engage people where they are. We give them space to figure things out. And all the while, we are a presence, not of pressure, but of love and compassion. And we speak truth to them, and we speak Christ to them, and we live Christ before them. But whether they accept or reject Christ, we don't treat them any differently because we just love them. And we do this with each other in our own journeys because we can become just as impatient with each other as we do with people who aren't Christians. But we give each other space to figure things out and to grow and to learn. And we don't have to have all the answers for people. We just need to love people and to speak the truth in love when we need to do that. But always in love. And maybe one of the most profound ways in which we love people is sometimes it's it's asking forgiveness of people. Individually and corporately. It's hard to ask forgiveness. One of the most difficult things we we do is to say, I'm sorry. Because to say I'm sorry is to acknowledge we made a mistake, we were wrong, and maybe they don't know we were wrong. Well, I guarantee you, people know we were wrong. And the reason asking forgiveness can be so profound is because it happens so seldom. And for some of you who are still on your journey with Christ, some of you who are wrestling with the church, I want to stand here as a representative of the church and say, forgive us. Forgive us for too often appearing arrogant, for too often speaking in a condescending tone, for too often giving the impression that we are perfect, that we have all the answers. Forgive us for not being willing to take responsibility for our role in the things that sometimes happen in the world that we just don't want to deal with. And forgive us for for giving the impression that the best image of the church is a country club. Instead of a hospital. You know. Country clubs are are kind of fun to be a part of. Because you're part of the in group. You know. I mean. There are country clubs about class. It's about the people who are served. And the people who serve them. And if you're the one who is served. You get to walk in the front door. If you're the one serving. You have to go through the back. 
And clubs, however we want to define them, are about ways in which we are alike. We have the same mindset. We have the same way of looking at things. And whether we like it or not, in some form, a club is not just about who we let in. It's who we don't let in. It's about excluding people. And so we only want people who have... You know, we, we design clubs for people who have either the financial resources or the power or the connections. And we give them the secret password and the secret handshake and the code so that they can get in, but other people can't. And too often, if not overtly, subtly, we send a message that this is what the church is about. When in reality, I read the scriptures and I hear Jesus saying things like, I have come for people who recognize they are sick and want help. And the church is a hospital for people who are sick. And we admit we're sick. We acknowledge that we're sick. And we need help. It's not about people who've gotten it all together and so now I can come. We come so that we can begin to, to live and to get some things taken care of. And when you think about the, the the church as a hospital, some people are in the emergency room, some people in the operating room, some people in recovery, some in ICU, some in a step down unit, some in a regular room. Some have even been healed enough that they can help other people in their healing process. But everyone who works in a hospital is always susceptible to getting sick. We never stop being susceptible to getting sick. And that's why we have to continually connect ourselves to the great physician. He alone can heal us. He alone is the source of life for us. We aren't healed because we're better than other people. We aren't healed because somehow we've arrived at a certain level and we've done enough things. The only way we get better is by surrendering more and more of ourselves to the great physician who heals us. And coming to the cross and acknowledging it is all about him in us. And if we want to project an image of God that pleases him, That's true. It begins with the cross. It begins with the humility of the cross and the self-denial and surrender of the cross and that attitude and spirit of love and compassion that is the cross and Christ in us. Years ago, when the Promise Keepers uh, movement was at its apex, this movement uh, for men. And people had varying opinions about it, but at its core, it was intended to help, help men become uh, better Christians, better fathers, husbands, friends, be better people, better followers of Christ. And, and men came together in stadiums all over the country to worship, to pray, to learn, to grow. And there were some powerful things that took place in those events. And at the heart of that, 
probably 20 or so years ago, there were a group of guys who were in seminary in the suburbs of Chicago and heard about, they were having an event, a Promise Keepers event at Soldier Field and they really wanted to go. They wanted to get a good seat. We were talking about probably forty or 50,000 men gathering in Soldier Field. They wanted to be up close. And so they left early and decided that the best way to get there early and to get a good seat would be not to take the train, but to take a taxi. And so six of them piled into this taxi and headed out. And they said they probably scared the driver half to death because of they, you know, they were just jabbering the whole time, talking, excited. They, they, you know, they, they were just having a great time anticipating getting there, getting a good seat, because it was first come, first serve when you arrive. And as they got closer to the stadium, the traffic increased until they got, maybe they were six or seven blocks away, and it virtually came to a standstill. And they were trying to figure out what to do as they were picturing in their minds these, those best seats evaporating. And they decided what they would do is pay the driver, get out, and run the rest of the way. And then one of the guys said, but wait a minute. If we get out now, we're going to give this guy a half fare. And we're going to leave him stuck here in traffic with virtually no chance of picking up another fare. I don't think we should do that. When we got in the cab, we committed ourselves for him to take us to Soldier Field. And I I think that's what we need to do. And they looked at each other and said, yeah, you're right, we should. And so they stayed in the cab and they didn't get very good seats. They had a chance to talk with the driver a little bit. Who knows what came out of that conversation. But they walked away feeling like they had represented Christ in a way that staying in the cab did and getting out wouldn't have. People view God through the lens of our lives. Individually, corporately. What are they seeing? Heavenly Father, we have to admit that um, we have often failed bearing witness to who you are. Forgive us. Open our eyes to those places, people, circumstances where you lead us and we have opportunities to bear witness for you. Father, help us as a congregation as people gathered in this place to be more interested in how we represent you than anything we might gain for ourselves. Fill us with your grace. And we pray this through Christ.
Amen.